Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eyewear. But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the Eco Wild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar, May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you and we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. 
And that is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Coming at you right before we're leaving for a big old deer hunt, our SOA hunt coming up. So uh, y'all stay tuned for that. I'm sure we're going to record something in camp. Uh, but on this episode, we're hitting some listener Q&As. You can uh, hit the timestamps in the description if you want to skip around and check those out. Uh, but Mr. Jacob Myers, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Just got off a, a big deer camp. Actually, Andrew, you ditched this on, by the way. Ditch is a strong word, my man. I was waiting to save that for the audience until we got here. But you know, oh my god! Now this is poor planning. (laughs) Jacob's like, why don't you, why don't you book that uh, bunkhouse? We need that bunkhouse uh, the the thirtieth through the seventh, and then everyone left on like the third. I'm like, well, good thing I didn't spend seven hundred dollars on this bunkhouse. Anyways, all right, we'll we'll hash this out later. (laughs) Yeah, it was it was was fun trip. Uh, Got a butt kicked. Had a bunch of guys in camp. Of course, y'all saw that episode that came out uh, really just a couple days ago. Yep. Um, But uh, today we've got uh, Greg Farrell. Am I pronouncing your last name correct, Greg Farrell? You got it. All right. So from uh, you got to have confidence. Come on, ah, dude. It's me and last names. Like so, Greg. You've never been around me at trade shows, but it's bad, dude. You know, I I need name tags for people to come up and talk to me, and and don't ever mention a last name. Just mention first name. I hope it's a simple first name, like John, Jack, Jacob, Andrew, something simple. Um, But Greg, uh, of course, you work at First Light, and uh, tell the listeners a little bit about more of your position. Uh, It's been a little while since you've been on the podcast. I think we had you guys on. Uh, got a year ago, maybe? Yeah, well, after Georgia. Yeah, after the Georgia trip. Uh, we talked about the Trace kit and all that had come out, but uh, kind of give a refresher for the uh, the audience, you know, your position at First Light, but also kind of what all you're um, really in charge of to get a lot of our listeners a little more excited about what's to come. Yeah, so I appreciate you guys having me back on. It's always great hamming up and chatting with you guys, but, um, I am the senior category manager at first light, um, for their, for our whitetail category. So really, you know, my job is anything, you know, the way I try and describe from like a super high level, like all the way from taking like, you know, figure like a whiteboard full of product ideas, right. All the way through from that to like bringing the product to market. So when somebody's able to go on the website and order a product, um, if it's under the whitetail category, um, it's basically kind of under my jurisdiction or, you know, under my purview. So that's everything from like the idea to, you know, design, you know, working with design, designers and developers to actually build the product, get prototypes, test it, um, you know, go through the different wear testing phase, commercialize it, choosing fabrics, insulations, trims, et cetera. So kind of everything and anything in the whitetail category um, is basically what I'm working on at any given time. Awesome. Now, also, Greg, I'll say this. You're a hardcore whitetail hunter, of course, uh, and you would have to be to really be in this position to be 100% honest. It wouldn't make sense if you weren't a big hardcore whitetail hunter. Uh, Give me a rundown real quick of your season. What all have you been able to kind of get out and go do? Because I know last year you came down to Mississippi and hunted. Have you done anything else like that this year? Yeah, so we were chatting a little bit about this before we hit record, I think. But I think last year I was in, I want to say it was seven different states. Um, the year before that, it was between, I think the three or four years before that, it was between five and seven um, states every year. And this year I kind of switched gears. So um, I live in Wisconsin, which is 
one of the cool things about first light when when I when we decided we were going to go into whitetail. So I don't know. I won't go too in depth in this, but when I started at first light, we had two whitetail products, and that was it. Um, and it's been kind of my job since then to really build out our whitetail line. But um, you know, our original owners and founders were incredible about it. They were like, "Hey, we want to do whitetail, and we want to be authentic." Like I grew up in Wisconsin, I cut my teeth on whitetail. Like it's been my passion my entire life, and um, I kind of went to them and I was like, hey, if we want to build the best whitetail product in the world, like I need to spend not seven days a year hunting whitetails, right? Like if I'm living out in the West where we're based and like flying home, like I need to spend 70 days a year in a stand, like really ideating, product testing, et cetera. And they were all about it. So um, yeah, I'm based in Wisconsin. Um, I spend, I don't know how many days a year. I, I stopped keeping track a long time ago, but I'm definitely in that, you know, 70 days a year in the field type of thing um, every year. And this year, like I said, I, I kind of changed um, pace a little bit. I really decided to just focus on my home state. So I didn't do a single out of state hunt this year. Every single one of my days were in Wisconsin, um, kind of scattered throughout the state, but uh, really focused on just a couple of deer and spent a ton of time in my home state, which is pretty fun. On. Yeah, absolutely. Real quick, I, I'm curious to ask you this because anytime we get someone on that's hunted the South, I want to know the differences between yeah. their home state and where they hunt and down south. So you went to Mississippi last year. I know that. What do you see was the biggest difference between how deer are, say, in Wisconsin and the hunting style versus what you experienced down in Mississippi? Well, I'll tell you the first thing that I thought was hilarious when I got down there is like I rolled into camp and some of the guys that were, you know, have spent time hunting there before, they started talking about ridges. And I'm looking around and I was like, there's no ridges. Like, what are you guys talking about? Like, there's no elevation change here. Like, what's a ridge? And apparently in Mississippi, anything that's about two feet higher than the ground you're standing on is considered a ridge. So that was one of the things that I found really interesting. But um, in terms of deer movement, man, or like deer themselves and their habits, you know, obviously like in the Midwest, we're hunting a lot of like corn fed deer. There's ag all around, right? So it's like, giant bodies were pretty far north so it's just like the deer themselves are bigger um so that's something to pay attention to right like you know a four-year-old deer in wisconsin looks a lot different than a four-year-old deer in mississippi just based off of kind of the food they have to eat and the genetics and things like that um but the other thing too and i, I mean I, I think people uh a lot of people talk about this right and it probably gets a little bit glorified but man the all of the southern deer hunting i've done like those deer are on a hair trigger like they are <laughs> wound tight compared to some of the deer i hunt around here that was another thing i noticed right away yeah that's so i'm, I'm glad you brought that up uh so we had our buddy uh, chris leppert in hunting camp with us and he's from ohio first time ever hunting down south uh, he didn't get a, just a ton of opportunities on deer. Um, just it, he learned very quickly. Like we have fairly high deer numbers down here, but they're very sporadic and spaced out because of how good the habitat is. So it doesn't concentrate them to pockets, especially later in the season necessarily. Um, but one thing he was talking about was like, of course, the body size of the deer. He's like, man, he's like, I'm seeing does around here. I don't know. There might be a two or three year old doe, but it looks like a doe fawn back home right now in Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> but also some of the guys, again, that we've hunted with from other uh, states that have come south, talk about the hairpin trigger, you know, deer always on edge, always look up in trees. And that's why you hear a lot of guys, I hear a lot of guys in the Midwest talking about like shooting deer at a pretty good distance. And I've heard uh, uh, Le uh, Levi Morgan talk about this because uh, I know he hunts like Mississippi. And I think that's where you guys were at last year. Uh, on yep. one of his places. Um, and it's like, dude, 
it is so challenging uh, to shoot deer like at past 30, 35, 40 yards, especially if they're any kind of on edge. Because again, they're smaller, lighter body weight, they're super nimble, they're always on edge, and it makes it extremely challenging. And uh, yeah, that's, that's so funny because I, again, I hear guys like, oh man, I killed a deer on a cornfield at 62 yards. And I'm like, you know, I know guys who've done that down south, but it doesn't hit necessarily right. where you, they were aiming at because the deer spun around 108 degrees before the arrow gets yeah, to it. you're aiming at a small target, too. <laughs> <laughs> like, let's just be honest. Yeah, here. yeah, absolutely. Kills and shrunk down. It, about. It, may, it makes me think of, like, Greg, like, what's it like a like a four-and-a-half-year-old buck where you're from? What, what would the live weight of that deer be, typically, just on average? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's going to depend, too, like, what phase of the season we're in, right? Like, is it during rut, after rut, pre-rut? But, you know, it's like, it, man, these deer are eating corn all year, right? And like soybeans, like they just get big, you know? Like everybody talks about like a 200 pound deer, you know, like it's some, or it's some like magic number. It's like, that's not, I mean, that's not an anomaly by any means for us. Like they just get big, they get thick, they get heavy. Like that's just kind of the norm, you know? Like, especially when they get to that, for us, like we see the biggest jump, um, you know, when you get to that, like four year old, like from three to four and then four to five, like that's when those bodies just really blow up and they get pretty big and pretty heavy. Like, you know, over 200 pounds is not, it's not a weird thing to see. Now, an another thing we say over 200 pounds from my experience, a lot of guys in the Midwest, they're talking about dressed weight. When we weigh yeah. deer down here, we're talking about live weight. So yeah. we're not talking about oh, yeah. uh, 200 really pound live weight yeah. or dress uh, I'm weight. I'm talking deer. about he's got everything. Uh, <laughs> like, uh, there ain't a hair yeah, missing I don't off think that I've deer. Ever, I've never weighed a deer not dressed. Like it's just it's <laughs> funny how it's such a regional thing. Like yeah. I've never, yeah, I've never even put a deer on a scale that wasn't like fully dressed out already. It, it's easier for us because we can just put them in our pocket <laughs> and carry them back. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's yeah. it. Yeah. Dude, you uh, you, you stick a whole doe in a transfer pack, not gutted, just over a hike back to the yeah. truck with her on. That's, that's really almost not a joke. I mean, you could. Uh, that Like the place that we're going to hunt tomorrow when oh. we leave out of here, We I told you a minute ago, we both killed bucks there last year. My buck was aged by the biologist at four and a half years old and live weight, guts in him. He weighed 134 pounds. <laughs> his no buck, his buck was five and a half, live weight, gut, not gutted or anything. It was what 147. Yeah, 146, 147. Yeah. And they had man, that's crazy. They had tiny little hooves on them too, man. Because we were looking for some bigger tracks. Because like a lot of times in Alabama, if you find a track about you know four fingers wide, you know about as wide as your hand. You know that's a really good deer. Yeah. You know, I'm a 180 pound plus deer. We were down there for four days. I'm like, I haven't seen a single track that I didn't think was like a one and a half, two and a half year old doe. And then after seeing these bucks, yeah. I'm like, I get it because I guess a tiny yeah. little. And we, and we discussed it when we were there yeah. because you were like, I'm not impressed by that track. I'm like, this is the biggest track we've seen yet. Like, I don't know what I think these deer are just tiny. Because yeah. I mean, that's pretty small even for what we're used to. But like, the I mean, the biggest buck I've ever shot, period, was 180 pounds mm -hmm. with his guts in him. Like straight up 180, not dressed. <laughs> yeah, dressed. That's so, yeah, that's that's so different. I mean, I killed a I killed a deer last year in Wisconsin that um, you know, I was on some ground we lease and I was by myself. Um and it wasn't that far. I mean, I was probably I don't know, quarter mile max from my truck, like probably not even that far. And it was a pretty flat, like, you know, we gut deer and drag them out that way, like to the back of the truck and I mean, this was a four and a half year old deer and I had a slight incline that I had to get up to get to the truck. I mean, it was nothing big, right? Like I'm a pretty fit athletic dude. Like I couldn't move that. Like I 
could not get that deer up that hill. I had to take his rear quarters off and walk those back to the truck before I could pull the rest of them back there because I just couldn't drag them. Oh my gosh! Yeah, dude, we get there. There's a reason we call them pine goats down here. Like, they're, yeah, they're pretty tiny. Yeah. But well, I, I was going to mention something, Greg, and this kind of goes back to the versatility of like what you have to like work with when it comes to like the uh, like you know whitetail is like the number one big game species hunted in North America. Okay hunting from all over the country and you have all these like different hunting styles and regions of the country that whitetails are hunted in, which actually kind of, to me, complicates your job about developing pieces that fits for like the Southern guy like us, but also maybe fit for a guy up in Maine and a guy maybe in upper, you know, upper, uh, like the Northwoods, Wisconsin, Iowa and all that kind of stuff. And to me, that's where it gets really complicated because like I can look through the lens of like what a Southern would want to see. But I can't imagine what a guy hunting, you know, late season Wisconsin or something like that would want to need and, and have in order to be able to make that hunt enjoyable, but also make him efficient without too much bulk so he can shoot his bow or shoot his muzzler or his rifle, whatever he's got, you know, for the time of the hunt. So I feel like that's a big challenge that you have to kind of overcome. And you've done a good job with it, but it's got me very excited for things to come in the future and, and everything y'all have kind of done to kind of develop, you know, different lines that's going to really fit the needs for different audiences, different members uh, of the uh, white crew but also a different customer base across the country yeah i joke i mean so i i run our whitetail line right but we have um i have two other co-workers one that runs our western line and one that runs our waterfall line and i joke with those guys all the time I was like man your jobs have to be so easy it's like western hunting it's kind of all the same right like noise doesn't matter you don't have to worry about how loud something is or like waterfall like you're not worried about how loud something is or scent and i was like man if i could just build your guys's line like <laughs> yeah, need the job i gotta worry about like you said it's like guys all the way from down south to up north like everybody wants things to be you know quiet and windproof and waterproof and durable but like all the conditions are so different it's you're spot on like we hunt whitetails in such a variety of environments you know and geographic regions temperature ranges etc so making gear that's really versatile, right? So that whether you hunt whitetails in the deep south or, you know, the north, like you're building a kit based off of kind of the same principles. It's just different parts and pieces to that kit. Like that's really what I strive for with our whitetail line. Yeah, and it's like, you know, we've got listeners and we've interviewed guys that, you know, from like South Florida that are hunting, running whitetails late July, early August, okay? Absolute miserable conditions. Nothing in my body tells me I want to go hunt there. I'll be 100% honest <laughs> to all those people. And then you have people, uh, then you have other parts of the, uh, of the country, you know, like Alabama, Mississippi, and some of these other states that will be deer start, don't even start running until January in a lot of these places. So, you, like, you have this huge range of seasons and temperature ranges and just conditions that everybody's kind of hunting in. Um, and and just, it makes it very, very challenging. And it's like, that's why we have people that message us, oh, man, what do I need to get? I'm like, well, where do you live first off? And like, what kind of conditions are you hunting in yeah. typically? You know, are you a big early season guy or do you just hold out for the rut? Is the rut in November? Is the rut in January? Because that really makes a big factor for, yeah. you know, what all someone would need in order to go and hunt. Because if you're hunting, you know, South Florida, late July, early August, there's no reason you would probably ever own a solitude kit. Okay. Yeah. It's going to be the trace kit, lightweight, super breathable, stuff that wicks really well because you're going to be sweating to death, getting eaten by mosquitoes that are probably the size of a, like a, you know, a hawk um, and everything in between versus, you know, a guy like up where you're at, where, you know, early season, starting like in October, you probably still have a little bit of cold fronts coming through. It's probably pretty nice weather versus us opening day, bow seasons, typically some of the most miserable conditions to hunt in. 90% humidity, you know, if it's cold, if it's cool, it's 86 degrees, 85 degrees. I don't like know. That. It depends. Sometimes we get a, a pretty decent 
70s. You know, that's that's like a really nice opening day. I think this year yeah. opening day was like that. Yeah, but it's it's just that wide range of stuff that it, it's so interesting to kind of see all the different areas and the factors that go into white hunting just based off where you're at. Because you'll talk to somebody and they're like, man, this is my favorite piece of gear. You know, works great for me. And they talk to somebody else on online and like, dude, I would never wear that because where I'm at, it's too hot or it's too cold. Like it just, it wouldn't fit my needs. So mm-hmm. it's a, it's a big range of stuff. Um, but also Greg kind of getting into it. Cause we're going to get some Q and A's on this, on this uh, podcast. And I guess we'll talk a little bit about that hunt that we just did. Um, so one thing that I, I think has been a huge factor for us is like, when y'all came out with that windproof solitude kit, I guess that was last year, was like a huge, huge upgrade compared to like, you know, just the original solitude kit. And that's something that we had always would wear so much just for like having the insulation value needed for like when you start getting the days in the 20s and the, the low 30s. Um, but one thing that we've realized is like when you have windproof garments, how much less bulk you need underneath it in order to stay warm. And that's been like a huge factor for us kind of moving forward of being able to like shed less layers and not have to have so much on in order to try to stay warm while in the stand or in the saddle, especially when you're trying to hunt, maybe not all day, but you're trying to hunt from, you know, you're in the stand or saddle 30 minutes before daylight and you're trying to hunt till noon, reposition and hunt until dark. Uh, It makes a huge, huge difference kind of limiting a lot of that bulk by having like that windproof garment, like those solitude kits. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it's the the challenge with windproof has always been as whitetail hunters, we are so hyper focused and we we really need our gear, you know, especially we're talking about deer being on like a hairpin trigger, right? Like we need our gear to be quiet. It's super easy to make something windproof. Like that's not a challenge, it's been done forever. Where it gets difficult is how do you make something windproof, which inherently whether it's a membrane or a certain textile, like it's always going to make it more loud. So how do you balance that, you know, by making something windproof, but also keeping it quiet enough that it still makes us effective as hunters. Um, and that's really like kind of the sweet spot and the challenge that, that I have with all these pieces and, and you're spot on, like, you know, if you think about what, what does it mean when something's windproof? Well, it's not letting air from the outside permeate through. Right. But what a lot of people don't think about, or what you also need to understand is, if it's not letting air come in from the outside, it's probably not letting air go out from the inside either. So that's why you're getting, you know, even though you're not adding insulation, you're just capitalizing your body. Your body is an internal combustion engine, right? Like it's making heat all the time. So that windproof membrane, well, it's not letting air come in. It's also keeping some of that internal temperature, you know, similar. So like your microclimate basically between that piece and your body it's trapping some of that heat in there. So you're benefiting from the heat that your body's constantly putting off anyways, which is great when you're in a stationary position where we need to be careful with that, right? Is, you know, if you have a, a mile walk in, right. And you got all your layers on, you know, moisture is always the enemy. So if you sweat yourself up going in, right, it doesn't matter how many layers you have the best insulation in the world on like, if your microclimate or your internal um, climate, you know, the humidity is really high, there's a lot of moisture, like you're going to be battling that moisture against that moisture to try and stay warm. So it's really kind of understanding how to maximize different parts of your kit for, you know, the different parts of your hunt. So it's like on the way in, you want to be really breathable. You want to be dumping all the heat possible that you can, because as you're moving, you know, your body's putting off more heat. And then once you get to a stationary position, right, you let your body cool down a little bit and then you're able to 
throw that external layer on and trap the remainder of that heat kind of in that microclimate and really use that to your benefit the rest of the day. Yeah. And see, this is such a good point. And Greg, I want to pick your brain on this. So growing up as a kid, uh, my uncles were the ones that took me hunting and it was always, you know, nine, 10, 11, 12 years old, get you fully dressed bibs, jacket, heavy insulated boots. And then <laughs> freaking put yeah, Walmart sacks yeah, yeah. on your feet. So let me tell you about that. My mom, dude, that, that was a thing on that side of the family. You know, you put a bag or oh, I'm serious. You put a Walmart bag around your sock and like stick it in your boot. And it's always oh, going to trap the more, it's going to trap the heat in. Well, it traps some moisture in too. And you freeze to death. Okay. <laughs> but, um, but anyways, as kids, like my uncles were always worried about, you know, me and my brothers getting cold. So like we just get fully dressed and not have to walk far, but have to, you know, maybe walk, three, four, 500 yards, maybe to like a stand or a shooting house, a blind, something like that. And you get in there and you're warm for that first 30, 40 minutes. And then all of a sudden you are getting freezing mm. because you sweat it up so much. And I still see grown men doing that where like they're talking about putting on their bibs and their jacket and all their outer layers walking in. And I get it if it's like sub 20 degrees and you don't have a long walk or if it's, you know, below zero, which thank God we don't have to deal with down in the South. No. And, you know, you're putting all your layers on, you're taking your time to get to the stand. But like when you're around where we're at and it's in the 30s or maybe 40s, if you put anything on more than like very light base layers and walk in with some like thinner pants and like just a, a long sleeve, uh, breathable shirt, when you get there, you're going to be typically, now everybody sweats a little bit different. I sweat a lot, okay? <laughs> and I will freeze to death if I wear a bunch of different outer layers, walk in and get super swept, and it's never going to dry, okay? Or it takes forever for it to dry. Um, and I think that's one huge issue I see with a lot of people is like they try to put too much on because they get out of the truck like, oh, man, it's cold, start putting stuff on, and then they start walking to their stand, which, again, might only be a couple hundred yards, or if you're hunting public land, might be half a mile, three quarters of a mile, a mile. And then at some point, you're like, when you finally feel like you're hot, it's too late is my is like yeah. my understanding. <laughs> By the time you feel like I'm really warm, I'm hot, you're already sweaty and good luck because you need to air dry before you put any other layers back on. Yeah, you take that jacket off and that, that cold <laughs> air hits that sweat and you're like, oh my gosh. Yeah. So I mean, Greg, what's your what's your take on that about like, you know, knowing like your what your body's capable of as in like do you perspire, do you sweat a whole bunch compared to somebody else? And knowing when maybe you should start out really being cold walking in especially if you have a little bit of a hike so you don't get too sweaty when you're actually getting to the stand and then get redressed when you're at the base of the tree or actually actually up in the tree yeah i mean and that's kind of the i'm glad you brought this back up because i was thinking about this earlier when you're talking about like you know well whitetails are hunted in such a broad range of you know geographic regions and temperatures and etc and like that's true but we also don't have to overcomplicate this like it doesn't matter if you are hunting, let's call it in Minnesota, late November, right? Or early December or in Florida in July to stay comfortable in either one of those situations. It comes down to moisture management. Like that is the key for either one of those guys or gals is like making sure that your relative humidity next to skin, you know, remains low or as close to normal as possible. So that's going to look very different in the kits that those two people wear, right? To do that but they're still trying to solve the same problem. Like how do I manage my moisture? So for that guy in Florida in July, like for him, there's no way he can do anything without sweating, right? Like it's probably a hundred degrees, hundred percent humidity. Like as soon as you think about stepping out of the truck, like you're sweating. Okay. So for him, his kit has to dry really fast because we can't keep him from sweating, but the faster we can dry his gear out, the more comfortable he's going to be. Right. For that guy in Minnesota in late December, let's call it, like it's going to be super cold. 
So what we need to do is like, we need to build a kit where he can keep his relative humidity low during his periods of like output, whether it's the walk-in or climbing into a stand. And then we build a kit on top of that foundation of, okay, now how do we use our, you know, our internal combustion engine, our body heat, right. To then keep ourselves warm with these added tools on top of that. So for me, I didn't coin the term. I don't know who did. I heard it a long time ago, but I've kind of adopted it. Like my kind of like, you know, thing I always go to is I call it like comfortably cold. So what I'm always thinking about, like, especially when I start out from the truck, like I want to feel like I'm cold. Like I don't want to be like shivering and super uncomfortable. Right. But like I should feel cold. And if I don't feel cold, like standing next to my truck or like a little bit cool, I know that I have too much stuff on, you know, and that's going to change. Like within a couple minutes of walking, like that comfortably cold is going to come to like, you know, probably warm or a little bit more comfortable. And then the further you go, like the more and more kind of your threshold for the, what you're wearing versus the temperature changes. But to your point, it's like, I never want to feel hot because if to your point, I feel hot, like I'm, I've already overdone it, right? Like I'm already sweated up. I've already created too much moisture in my system. And it's going to be really hard to navigate um, or mitigate, excuse me. You know, what a lot of people don't realize is like, even sitting here right now, my body is putting off moisture. Um, it, most of it's in like gas form, right? So it's not actual like liquid moisture, right? Like sweat, but I am, I'm putting off moisture all the time. As soon as I turn that, like get too hot, that gas form of moisture turns to liquid form of moisture and that's actual sweat. And that's what becomes really hard to mitigate. Like once that bottom or that you know, that base layer piece gets wet, you know, that's when you're really kind of fighting an uphill battle to get that moisture moved out of your system and dry back out in order to be comfortable. So that's kind of how I always look at the situation, regardless of what the temperature actually is outside. By the way, Andrew, when Greg said he's passing moisture through uh, gas form, he's not mean passing gas. Okay, <laughs> I know that's I know that's what you're thinking, but like exhaling and all that. So I had to clarify for Andrew. It, that actually made me think of a hunt this past. Uh, it was last month, and it, it was one of those where like there's nothing you can do. Like you're gonna sweat, uh, and I was wearing I think it was the uh, Wick hoodie, and uh, and then I had like a furnace hoodie and some other stuff with me. And I got I got really sweaty walking in. Um, and when I got to the stand, I ended up throwing on my my uh, furnace hoodie and then my big jacket. And I was actually really impressed at how because when I was walking in, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm about to freeze to death because like I was pretty sweaty. But when I got in there, I mean, it moved that moisture pretty good. Uh, it basically when I threw all the bigger jackets on, it it kind of sucked the moisture out of that base layer, and I guess. I don't know, put it out in the jacket or something. So, I mean, do you have any tip for the less than ideal, but, you know, sometimes inevitable situation where, you know, you do get sweaty walking in? Like, is there any way to mitigate that once you get to the tree? Yeah. So what you just described, like, that's where good gear, you know, people always kind of comment or, you know, I'll have people say to me, it's like, well, I can kill deer in the cotton sweatshirt and Carhartt. It's like, absolutely you can. Like people have done it for, you know, whatever, hundreds of years, I'm <laughs> Carhartt has been around. Like, I'm not going to tell you that you can't, but people also used to ride like a horse and buggy to work. And we no longer do that anymore. Right. Like there's a better way to get about now. <laughs> and the like, gear is the same way, right? Like you can absolutely go kill big deer every year without technical gear, but what technical gear is going to do for you 
is when you get yourself in a situation that you don't want to, right? Like you're too hot walking in, you've got sweated up or the temperature ends up being colder than you thought it was going to. Like when you have that system that's built on a good foundation, right? And then the layers complement each other and work together, like that's going to allow you to be more comfortable when you mess up, like when there's human error in play. And when you're more comfortable, you can stay out in the stand longer. When you're in the stand longer, you end up typically having more success, right? So we talk about our our gear as like a system, you know, instead of just like one piece or two. Um, and it's for that exact reason, right? So like if I'm walking in, like I always have, so for me, like my base layer is always a wick 150. Typically for me, it's the hoodie. Um, I like the hoodie version because I can, you know, throw the hood on for more concealment or like a little sun protection if it's really warm or even when it's cold, right? Like I get some concealment on the back of my neck, but it's also a piece that dries really fast and moves moisture really well. So if I did overdo it, like when I get to the stand, I can leave that piece on for just a few minutes to let my core body temperature cool down. So I'm not kind of fighting against that. And then I can start putting layers over the top of that. And with those other layers, they're going to work with that piece to move moisture away from, you know, next to skin out to the next layer, out to the next layer, out to the next layer. As that moisture moves further and further away from your body, more and more of it is evaporating, right? So you're mitigating that moisture. But also as you add layers, even though it's over the top of a, call it like a wet layer, what you're doing is you're kind of creating an oven, right? It's like if you put a wet rag in the oven for long enough, it's going to dry out. You can actually use your body like an oven. And as you start to add layers over the top to actually dry out the layers that are closer to your gear, as long as there's a place for the moisture to go. So when you get into like the Wick 150, so that's a merino wool synthetic blend, that's going to do a couple of things really well. One, it's going to dry fast because it has that synthetic component to it, right? But it also has the merino wool component to it, which is really cool because merino wool actually retains up to 80% of its insulation value when it's wet. So even though you have a wet piece next to skin, it might not feel super comfortable, but it's actually going to still keep you kind of warm while it's in the process of drying out. Like I'm sure you guys have heard the saying cotton kills. Cotton doesn't do that, right? It retains its moisture for a really long time. And once it wet, once it's wet, it has no insulation property whatsoever. So it's actually cooling you down as soon as it gets wet. So yeah, a Wick 150, a lot more expensive than a cotton t-shirt, right? A cotton long sleeve t-shirt, but it's going to be the foundation of the rest of your system that you're going to start laying over the top of and work with it to kind of mitigate that moisture and move that moisture and make up for a potential mistake I made, right? By having too many layers on or not dressing appropriately for the weather, you know, X, Y, and Z. That's where that, you know, kind of technical hunting gear, that more expensive technical gear really comes into play and can kind of save you in those situations. Yeah, that's pretty much exactly what happened to me in that situation. I mean, I, you know, when I uh, put my big jacket on and everything, I, I, I was pretty warm all morning. And when I got down at about 10 a.m., uh, when I took those jackets off at the base of the tree, I felt my back because, you know, my back got super sweaty, pack going in and under my arms. And it was dry at that point. I was like, OK, that's pretty slick. Uh, and it, it worked really, really well that morning. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that that was like a that was a big asset for me in that situation, for sure. Um, what? Yeah. What you about to say? Yeah. Great. I, I've got a, a different question for you <clears throat> about uh, keeping your feet warm. OK. What is your take on that? Now, again, I know guys, I, know, I personally know some people, like, they swear their feet don't sweat walking in. OK. 
okay? They can wear insulated boots, you know, pretty fine, pretty dry socks by the time they get there. Other people, socks get soaking wet, you know, sweating, you know, walking a half mile, three quarters of a mile plus. It, what, what has been your experience when it comes to keeping your feet and your toes fairly warm in situations like that, especially for someone who sweats a little bit more? Is it as simple as packing a different pair of socks or like what have you done in order to kind of work through that process? Well, I'm, I mean, man, if there's anybody that is a passion wise owner that has an issue with cold feet, like you're looking at them. Like that has been my, the biggest thorn in my side since I've started white zoning is like keeping my feet warm. And for a lot of years, like I did it wrong. Like before I really understood kind of like the science behind layering in a system, it's like, we just talked about building a system for your upper body. Your feet are no different. Like you need to approach your feet the exact same way. And you know, how many guys do you know that throw their rubber boots on at the truck, walk out to the stand, and then they complain about their feet being cold. Well, it's like, even if you are somebody who your feet don't sweat a lot, sticking your foot in a rubber, sticking your foot in a rubber boot is no different than what you guys are joking about before about sticking your foot in a Walmart bag, right? Like inevitably <laughs> your socks are going to get wet. And once your socks are wet, you're screwed. So I think there's a couple, like there's different ways to combat that based off of like your style of hunting. Um, and kind of the temperatures and et cetera. I mean, rubber boots definitely have their place and have their advantage. And if you're in a place where it's like, it's super wet or, you know, you're really, really concerned about leaving extra ground scent or you have to cross a Creek or, you know, you just like rubber boots, like absolutely wear them. But as soon as you get to your tree, you know, take those socks off, right. And put a dry pair of socks on. Like that's the best thing you do for yourself. Or, you know, if there's periods of time in your walk-in where like you don't need full ankle to knee uh, coverage in terms of like staying waterproof, like roll those boots down so that a lot of that hot air or moisture can evaporate out of those boots or that system, right? To like keep the inside of that boot as dry as possible. So that's like the big thing is like, what are you going to do to keep your feet dry? So another thing that like I've gone to is if I can, you know, depending on the situation, like I've moved to going from wearing rubber boots to wearing hikers because those hikers will move moisture a lot better than rubber boots will. Um, and in a situation like I need that extra warmth, like I might still wear those hikers in and then I'll use like an overboot, right. Or some other solution to go over the top of that, um, to keep my feet warm. You know, if I'm standing on a metal tree stand, I, especially when it gets cold, like I carry this little rolled up, um, it's a piece of like, I don't even know what it is. It's some wool blend. Um, it's like super thick, almost like carpet pad looking. And like, I throw that down on my stand because the worst thing you can do for your feet is like stand on metal. That'll pull all the heat out of your boot regardless of what you're wearing. So for me, it's like, you got to keep your feet dry. How you do that depends on the boots you're wearing. You know, if that means bringing an extra pair of socks or wearing a pair of boots that mitigates moisture, like that's the first step. And then the second step is like that warmth component you can accomplish that warmth component in a lot of different ways, whether that's wearing an overboot, whether that's like, I'm sure you guys have seen the trick where you actually use an old sock, pull it over the boot and stick like a hand warmer in there, right? Or whether you have a standing pad to separate your stand from your boot. Like there's a lot of other tricks for the warmth component, but the moisture component will always outweigh the warmth component. So you really have to pay attention to that moisture component. Yeah. One, hey, one thing I've done with the, with the boots this year is, first of all, I don't wear rubber boots unless I absolutely have to for where I'm walking to. But, uh, I, earlier this year, I got some new work boots that they're not, they're not like a technical hunting boot at all, but it's just a full leather work boot. Um, 
And I started wearing those on sits where, you know, maybe I'm not going that far or maybe I'm not going to cross like wet grass or anything like certain sits, like in cold situations. And I've noticed my feet absolutely do not sweat in those. Like I have to really be working for my foot to sweat in that versus I've got some other more technical hiking boots that it's like a synthetic material. I don't know what it is, but it's like, man, I'll just put them on and I'll be driving and my feet are sweating in those things. Like, I don't know. It just doesn't breathe really well. That's, and that leather breathes extremely well. Well, see, I was going to say the complete opposite. And Greg, this is what I was going to ask you. Are you a fan of a full leather hiker boot or do you like some kind of synthetic component? Because I've got full leather hikers couple different couple different making models that i've had for you know quite a few years and got a ton of miles on them and i feel like the leather ones don't breathe because like well the, I mean, well those are all uh, waterproof though like that, your lowas your crispies those are all like sealed boots like technical these are straight up freaking work boots like the tongue goes down they're not waterproof at all mm -hmm. so anyways no so well that's where i was gonna get at greg you know what is your thoughts on like a technical hiking boot that has like a waterproof membrane in it which is, of course, going to seal in moisture and seal out moisture versus like a untreated, unlaminated uh, kind of uh, hiker that probably is going to move air a little bit more. I mean, what's your take on those two for like, again, that, you know, getting moisture out of the boot? Yeah. And this is like, I just want to make sure I'm clear. Like, this is for me and for my system and the places I hunt, right? Like, because I don't. I don't have a lot of like, I don't deal with a lot of wet stuff. Like in most of the places I hunt, I'm not consistently crossing creeks. I'm not dealing with a lot of moisture. So like the, the way my system has kind of evolved is let's call it from like the opener of the season, you know, and this is, we're referencing the Midwest right now. Right. So I'll actually talk about like temperatures, like from the opener of the season, which might be 70 degrees for me. Right. Until I hit about 30 degrees, my go-to is an uninsulated, or excuse me, a uh, non-waterproof hiker. So the reason I like that is because I can vary the amount of insulation inside of that boot with the type of socks that I wear. So early in the season, I can wear a really thin, you know, really breathable, more like, you know, light hiker, like running style sock. That's going to move a lot of moisture. It's not going to trap a lot of heat in, and it's going to work with that boot to let moisture evaporate. Right. As the season goes on, it gets colder. I might go to like a thicker sock that has like a really high loft Terry, right. Type of weave that's going to allow for more air to stay in that system. Right. So like more air, more volume equals more insulation, but it's still going to allow moisture to leave because we're still talking like temps in the you know, the 40s, you know, maybe low 40s as low as I'm going to take that system. So I just vary the amount of insulation by the socks I wear for that temperature range. Once I get sub 30, that's where I really like to move into like an insulated boot with some type of waterproof membrane. And for me at those temperatures, the waterproof membrane is more about trapping heat inside, right? Than it is actually be using, keeping it waterproof. Now, you're also dealing with snow in those temperatures. So as you walk through snow, right? Like you don't want that melting into your boot and getting your system wet. Um, but that's kind of the way it works for me. Like if I'm hunting a place like Mississippi, for example, we talked about that. I was dealing with a ton of moisture on that hunt. I was wearing a rubber boot all the time. So then I was doing other things to mitigate the moisture. Like I said, like rolling them down on the walk-in, having an extra pair of socks that I change into when I get to the stand, like those types of things. 
Houndstooth Game Calls is your home for turkey calls this spring. Go check them out. They got all the classic turkey calls. You know, they got the pot calls and the box calls and the mouth calls, but they also got a couple really interesting calls. One of them is called the the success call, and you just need to go look it up. It's very, it's like a box call that you can work with one hand. It's really, really cool. Sounds incredible. They also got the Spur Master, which is another very unique call that you can get some really unique, clean tones out of. They're going to help you out this turkey season. Use the promo code SOP24 to get 15% off of your order at Houndstooth Game Calls. That's SOP24. Use it at checkout. It helps the podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. True Lock Chokes has been made in Georgia since 1981 and offering a wide range of chokes, over 2,000 different chokes for all kinds of shooting activities. You might be wondering why you'd want to purchase a True Lock Choke and it's to improve your shotgun performance. Absolutely guaranteed. And as a great example, we have Andrew Maxwell here. And uh, Andrew, you've had some pretty good luck, again, kind of switching out chokes and trying out the Precision Hunter choke from True Lock. So Andrew, what's been your experience so far? Yeah, I've always, I've used the same choke for several years now. I never really thought much of it, and I got the True Lock choke in. I patterned my gun with the first choke at uh, 30 and 50, and then I switched to the True Lock and changed from 30 to 50. And the 50-yard pattern on my gun with the True Lock choke is unbelievable. Like, everybody's jaws were dropping. Like, when I, we were out there with Mike and Sam, we were all super impressed. I mean, it's throwing a better pattern at 50 now than it was throwing at 40 before my old choke. And Andrew, you're shooting the Precision Hunter choke from True Lock. It's a great option. Same chokes I have in my shotgun. So guys, if you want to give True Lock a shot this spring, you can head over to truelockchokes.com. That's T-R-U-L-O-C-K chokes.com. You can also use the promo code SOUTHERN at checkout at truelockchokes.com and save 10% on your order. Again, give True Lock a shot this spring especially if you're not happy with the performance of your shotgun and shoot with a more deadly pattern with true lock. Yeah. I'll say this rolling down. Like that's one big advantage. If you're going to use rubber boots, I personally typically am not a fan of like a neoprene upper rubber boot because like they're not as durable. 
But the, ban- the advantages of a neoprene upper boot is you can roll them down super easy and get maximum yeah. airflow when you roll it all the way down to your ankle almost, um, or low yeah. calf, uh, yep. compared to like a solid rubber boot, which you're not really going to roll those down very easily. Um, so yeah, that, that, that is a really, really good point on that and kind of the versatility of the system. So fascinating, Greg. Glad, glad we got some <laughs> points there. I think, yeah. I, I think we'll have some listeners pretty happy about some of those uh, points that we've made and maybe they'll go out there and not freeze to death uh, as they get into later in January and February here. Yeah, that's right. Um, um, all right, we got to get to some uh, Q and A's here. Okay, so. awesome. So everybody, you can uh, submit Q and A's. Appreciate sure everybody's been submitting uh, Q and A's for the podcast. Uh, the link for the Q and A's is down in the show notes below, both on the video version of this podcast, but also on the audio version. Uh, the link down there, you can get them submitted. We like to answer those on these outro episodes uh, as we work through them. So, Andrew, what you got? Because Greg, right. Greg's going to answer some of these too. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, all right, this is from Gabe Levin from Arkansas. He said, "I'm hunting heavily pressured WMAs in central Arkansas with high deer densities. Uh, new to the area, so I'm scouting and learning as I hunt." My main concern is that I can't seem to enter or exit any area without getting busted by multiple does, sometimes just a couple, sometimes a dozen or more. Uh, But every time I leave the truck, deer are aware of me. Uh, How much are these spooked deer impacting behavior of bucks in the area? What advice do you have for getting within bow range of bucks that are surrounded by does? I'm a new listener to the podcast, so please advise if there is a past episode that covers this topic. All right, uh... Greg, we'll go, we'll go to you first on this one, my man. We're gonna we're gonna put you in the hot seat. Yeah, so, well, as I was say, Greg, you probably in some of these areas you hunt, especially more ag areas, probably have fairly high deer numbers, but they're concentrated, especially as leaves fall off. So, like, how do you deal with that, especially in those situations when it's like, you know, especially leaves fall off, deer can see a lot further, and you know, trying to not bump deer while trying to go to a spot, especially whether it's a rut funnel or you're trying to hunt a food source. Like, how do you work around all that? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll I'll. Uh... I'll answer this based, I mean, maybe a little bit more tailored to the question, right? Because they're talking about uh, WMAs or like public hunting areas. Um, you know, that's an interesting situation. And I, I mean, a lot of my hunting, like growing up and, you know, what I did through college and, you know, all of that, like this is the exact situation I was in. And the interesting thing here is like you're forced to park in a certain area, right? Like when you're accessing certain public grounds, like you have to park in a certain area and you don't have the luxury that you might have with private ground to be like, oh, I'll just access it from this side, right? Or I'll just come in from this side because, you know, I want to keep my pressure low. I know there's bedding here and I don't want to bump deer, right? So like in this situation, there is going to be a certain amount that you just can't avoid, right? Like you have to park here. You have to go in from a certain area. Like you can't avoid bumping deer. But what I always did and found a lot of success in, and, you know, my suggestion here is like, you know that you can't avoid that nor can anybody else that's in that situation. So what I try and do is figure out, okay, when these deer are inevitably bumped or when these deer do feel pressure, where do they then go, right, to avoid that pressure? Where do they then go to feel safe? And I'm gonna figure out how do I get there, right? How do I actually use that pressure to my advantage? And even if I know I, you know, maybe I'm the one bumping deer, it's like, okay, they're gonna go somewhere So now that I know kind of where they've gone to feel safe, how do I then plan my, you know, entrance route or where I set up based off of where those deer have gone to safety, right? Because even if you're, and you know, in my experience, like the more you educate does, the more eventually that impacts bucks in the area, right? Because at some point in time, those bucks have a relationship, whether they're chasing does or not, right? Whether they're actually interested in pursuing does or not the bucks movements, right. And like what they do, there's a relationship between what they do and what those does do. So eventually it all gets impacted. 
So for me, you know, I'm always thinking, I'm trying to think like two or three steps ahead. Like I said, it's like, okay, if they do get pressured, if they do get bumped, A, where do they go? B, how do I use that to my advantage, right? Especially if it's inevitable and then kind of set, you know, play that chess game with them of not worrying about bumping them originally, but what do I do to react to kind of get in front of them then on that next step? That, that was, you kind of stole what I was going to say because <laughs> that's, that's, I've only had experience with an area kind of like this a couple times and it was always in Georgia. Uh, the, the particular place I hunted in Georgia was really high deer density and it, it was kind of the same thing. There were certain fields or, or like oat flats off the road that you were going to go hunt that you were kind of always bumping deer off of. And it was me and Michael Pike were hunting it and Pike's the one that kind of keyed me in on this, but he's like, Hey, like, you know, every time it kind of sucks, we're always bumping these deer because I was kind of in a similar frame of mind. But eventually we were like, you know what? These deer, like they're always going to the same, they're always running the same direction, you know, where they're always using the same feature to, to leave out of this field or whatever. And so we ended up keying in on that and, and we ended up having a bunch of good buck encounters. But yeah, like it, like if you kind of look at the, the inevitable bumping of, of does or even bucks as a learning opportunity, I mean, that could be pretty, that could actually be pretty, uh, like useful as a learning tool, but what were you going to say? No, I mean, uh, kind of agreeing with that, but also Greg, one thing I was going to ask you and Andrew kind of mentioned it, but like when you're talking about like where deer are heading to after they're bumping or being bumped, is that something that you would kind of scout out or is it just a visual observation? Like they're just running North, you know, in this spot when I bump them and then you pull up the maps and just try to figure out maybe what would be over there or you're kind of already familiar with the area. So, you know, they may be running into this little thicket or whatever, and then you're trying keying on that. Or is it one of those things that like, once you're bumping deer after a few times, you're actually trying to go scout where they've gone in order to try to have a better idea of what are they actually running to and holding up in when they have pressure? Yeah, for me, it's going to depend on like, is that a piece that is close to home and I have access to and I'm hunting a lot, right? Or am I on an out-of-state hunt and I only have a week to get it done, right? And I'll kind of answer it both ways. Like if I'm on an out-of-state hunt and I only have a week to get it done, if I bump deer, you know, say the first two days and they go in the same direction towards the same spot, like I'm going to 100% rely on e-scouting, right? I'm going to like get my maps out or confirm on my maps. It's like, okay, you know, this is where I saw a deer. This is where they went. This looks like bedding. I'm assuming this is food, right? I'm going to try and put those parts and pieces together based off of like what I saw in person and what I can see on the maps and try and kind of solve the puzzle that way. Now, if it's a place that's close to home or a place that I hunt a lot, like what I'll do is, you know, now, like once for me, like there's snow on the ground, the season's winding down, like I'm going to go in there, I'm going to walk exactly to where those deer went, right? And I'm going to spend a bunch of time, like actually confirming with boots on the ground. It's like, yes, there are beds here. There are trails here. Like this is a travel corridor. And then I'm going to use all that intel for next year, you know, like more play the long game when it's a place that's close to home or a place I can hunt a lot um, versus like really rely heavily on kind of a combination of e-scouting and in person if it's like i only have seven days to get it done yeah okay interesting so um on my point this is one thing i would tell him is just because you're bumping a lot of does i mean it, it comes down to like are you trying to shoot does are you trying to shoot any buck are you trying to shoot like a mature buck like it comes down to like someone's goal because like if you're trying to shoot does sounds like an awesome place no well it, yeah, it sounds like <laughs> awesome but it's also kind of frustrating but if i'm trying to shoot a buck depending on the time of the season, like if it's late season, I'm bumping does. 
so be it in my opinion it's like okay you bump does now try to figure out like what food source potential the buck could be at or like because the, the buck's probably not bedded around those does and those does may not be running back directly to where that buck's at um but i think that really comes down to like the point of the season that he's in and arkansas hunts really late they can hunt this year until february 29th with bow season which is insane because <laughs> you know by february wow. you're gonna be shooting shed bucks probably mm-hmm. um at least based off trail caribans I've ever had over there. By the first week of February, bucks were losing antlers. So, um, but I, I think it really kind of comes down to what are you trying to hunt? Like, are you just trying to go get meat or are you trying to hunt a specific buck or hunt bucks in general? Because I feel like, and like kind of like guys like Jacob Lyshen, I'm sorry, that we had on a podcast a couple weeks ago, he liked, he loved hunting late season. And one thing he mentioned is like those mature bucks are, like the does may be in the area, but he's not right there with him. He's like over in this general area. So as long as you're, bu- if you're bumping does, as long as they're not running the direction you think the buck's going to be in, it's not that big of a deal. Um, as long as they're not, you know, just overall harassing the woods and blowing their heads off for, you know, 45 minutes after the fact, which a lot of Alabama does will do. Um, so, you know, I, I think one factor as well is trying to figure out like what the cover looks like. Cause if he's hunting like big river bottoms with like com- covers very limited, that could be a little bit more of a, like a, a harder factor. I feel like, like if you're bumping deer in wide open woods that you can see for 400 yards. That's a different situation versus if you're like in clear cut country and timber management country, where like you can't see a hundred yards, you bump some deer. To me, that's not big of as big of a deal because the deer aren't going to run that far. They're just going to run until they can't see you. They may try to circle down one of you, and by that time, you're probably moving. So I feel like it's very indicative to like where and like what kind of habitat he's on. So I'd love for him to write back in with some more context of like the habitat in the area, and then how that can you know differentiate maybe how far some of those deer will run, and is that actually going to mess you up if you're not actually trying to go shoot a doe? Yeah, for sure. All right. We got to move on. Uh, this is from Noah from Alabama. He said, "Y'all are firing off some awesome stuff this season. I've been listening for about three years and have only been hunting for about six years. I'm an adult onset hunter, and since I shot my first deer, I've been hungry, so hungry that I want to be successful. Maybe too bad. Uh, I'm still searching for my first buck, and I might be putting too much pressure on myself. How can one combat the pressure on yourself to produce?" Again, love the show and can't wait to be a part of listener success, dot, 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 baby. <laughs> Greg, I think this is an interesting question for you to take, especially with how much social media puts pressure on guys. Because they see all their buddies killing deer, all these people killing deer, and they ain't killing deer, and they get a little upset. So, what? I mean, yeah, what's your take on that? I saw, I was, I listened to, or I saw a clip of an interesting, uh, and I don't even know who was doing the interview but uh, with him, but it was Mark Drury. And he was talking about how a 200 inch deer isn't that big of a deal anymore. And it was kind of interesting to me to like hear this, this talk, right. And it's, it's exactly what you're leading into. It's like, there's so much, um, availability of information now with social media and you see so much of, um, you know, see so many of these big deer get killed that I think we start to assume that like, that's the norm. Right. And it's not the norm. It's just that we have more access to seeing it happen. And, you know, I, I think that is one of the negative things about social media is there's this pressure to, it's like, oh, I got to go kill, you know, 150 inch deer every year. He's got to be five and a half years old. And it's like, there's a lot of places in the United States where 150 inch deer doesn't exist. So if you have that as your expectation, like you're never going to kill that deer. And I would argue that you're probably not having as much fun, like chasing something that's impossible as you would be if you just, you know, killed something that got you fired up, which I can go, I could talk on this for hours because I don't want to get too high on my soapbox, <laughs> right? But for me, like, I've fallen into this trap, right? Because I live so close to it. And 
um, I have the opportunity to gather a lot of this information. And, you know, one thing that I did, and I'll just share a personal anecdote, is three years ago, um, I decided on my couple of my personal couple of properties in Wisconsin, I did not run a trail camera for an entire year. And I've never had so much fun hunting in the last 10 years as I did on those properties that year, because every time I went out there, it was just like, I didn't really know what was there. Right. So I was going out with this like kind of fresh take on every single hunt. And it was much more like, it just felt more pure to me. Now, don't get me wrong. Like I went back to running trail cameras. I love trail cameras. I think they're awesome. Like they're a great useful tool, but I think the lesson in all of this is like kind of the same. It's like, this is supposed to be fun, you know? And if you get fired up shooting in the first doe that walks out in front of you and like that makes you happy, like you should 1000% do that. You know, if for you, it takes 150 inch five-year-old deer, like really get you fired up and be proud of what you did. Like, great. Like, that's your own prerogative, but I think it's really important that all of us kind of take a step back and be like, what are my actual goals here? You know, is it to fill up the freezer so that I don't have to buy meat from the grocery store for my family this year? Is it to kill a mature buck? Is it to, you know, kill my biggest buck yet? And just be honest with ourselves about what our goals are and kind of stay true to that. Cause at the end of the day, like you're the one that has to be excited about or happy about what you did that season. And it's only about you, right? Like you can post that picture on social media and maybe get a few likes and a few comments, but that wears off really quick. What lasts a long time is like your own feeling about how that season went for you and what you killed or didn't kill that season. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've fallen into this trap as well. Um, and, and I try to, I try to stay away from it as much as I can, but it's kind of ironic sometimes when you get, uh, really fired up about getting something. I was actually talking to Mike about this yesterday. I'm like, man, if I kill a deer like two weeks into deer season, I'm probably going to have a really good year because the monkey's going to be off my back and I'm like, okay, I got one, you know, I'm feeling good. And then the rest of the season, like I'm kind of, I'm kind of honed in. Whereas if it gets to like Thanksgiving and I haven't killed a deer yet, I'm probably going to end up with a doe or like a one and a half year old buck at some point. And that's probably what I'm going to kill that year. Like that's my pattern. And it's because by the end of season, like you, like at least this is how I am. I'm so fired up and I'm so like aggravated that I haven't got a deer yet that I kind of start trying to force it. And then you kind of make stupid decisions. It's kind of like, which I'm no golfer, but if I go to top golf and I'm drinking beers, trying to hit golf balls, I've noticed that <laughs> if I try to hit the living crap out of the ball, I'm probably going to shank it. And it's going to like go into the bay next to me. But if I just calm down and I, you know, take my time and, and follow through, I'm probably going to hit it pretty good. And it's kind of like that with, with a uh, deer hunting. And, and we've, I told you, Greg, we were trying to get my stepdad, Mike, his first deer and it's getting into January and it is the best part of the season for us. But at the same time, it's, it's getting kind of late, you know, we're running out of time. And so there was a little bit of that urgency coming up where we're like, okay, we got to make this happen. But, and you know, me and Mike were kind of talking through tactics of what we should do and if we should bounce and we should try something else. And I was like, no, like I, we know where they're at. Let's just keep, like, keep following what the sign is telling us to do and keep doing what we know we're supposed to do and not try to force anything. And, you know, I was telling him it, it kind of sucks. Like, you know, when you have three or four sits in a spot and you don't see anything at all, and for a lot of guys, three or four sits equals two or three weekends, and so a month, and you don't see anything. Uh, it can be it can be really discouraging. You'd be like, "Man, this property sucks. I suck at hunting. Like, I, I don't know what I'm doing." But in reality, you know, you're just not out there. You don't have the time to be out there 
so much to happen across past one of these bucks. And I'm happy to tell everyone that it happened last night. Mike did get a buck, his first deer. So we're going to have that on the podcast soon. But I just bring that up to say that uh, in that situation, I'd say like go back to the basics, like make sure you're, you're you know, going out and you're scouting and you're reading sign. Uh, don't feel like you got to be in a tree every single time you have a free moment. Like get out there and walk. Uh, you know, if it takes it, walk twice as much as you hunt um, and go find the right spot because it's better to have, you know, five quality hours in the stand versus, you know, 12 low quality hours where you're just kind of throwing darts at the wall and you're not really uh, hunting an area with a purpose. You're just kind of hunting to be in a tree. I would rather spend, you know, that first, you know, eight hours walking and scouting for a couple of days and then have that one really good sit than the other way around but uh jacob what's your take yeah no i when i've had this issue in the past of like struggling to kill a buck it's always because typically it's like you just keep throwing sits at spots that you're not consistently scouting and Mm -hmm. like expanding upon so you go back to spots that used to be good and you don't see what you're looking for and you're like well what's wrong then you go sit in another spot instead of just sitting go through and actually walking areas. Oh, yeah. And that's something that's bit me a couple times, a couple different trips this year so far. So <laughs> I go back to old spots, and I'm like, man, this spot was so good last year. And like, I see a couple of those. I'm like, what the, what is happening, man? And instead of getting down and actually walking, expanding, like why, why am I not seeing bucks in this specific area? And if you've never killed a buck, like this guy was talking about, you, you don't really have a lot of that past experience to fall back on, like what works and what doesn't work. So, like, I think that's a huge aspect of, like, just walking until you're actually finding sign, like, finding tracks, finding scrapes, finding rubs, mm-hmm. depending on where you're at in the southeast. Where was he from again? Um, Alabama. Alabama. Okay. So, I mean, more than likely right now, you're probably getting into your rut, more than likely in the state of Alabama, uh, unless you're in, like, a couple different weird counties. Um, so, you know, expanding on where you're finding that sign, but also in relation to thick cover security cover that's gonna be really good doe bedding mm-hmm. focusing on that like if, if you're like sitting wide open hardwoods or wide open pines you're not seeing anything you're not seeing bucks try to keep backtracking and walking around that property whether it's public or private until you find that thicker cover edge more likely gonna be a pine thicket or some kind of just thick spot it may be a couple acres and maybe 60 acres in size and then try to find correlations around that of where you're seeing the most concentration of bucks on yep. and then start hunting that and if that doesn't work continue to walk until you find better sign and actually start jumping deer that's one thing I've done. It's like, if you start jumping bucks, well, now you know where some bucks have been. He might not be there back for a couple of days, but you know what he's using. You know what a buck specifically using. And if you can figure out what that looks like on the map, maybe I can find something that looks similar on the map in a different area, go in there and throw a sit at it and maybe have an opportunity to buck. Yeah, definitely. And also, I'll say this. like Again, we're going to do a whole episode with Mike talking about his deer, but in that particular situation, we had been hunting this part of the property that was planted pines really thick underneath, and I'd hunted it a couple times. Uh Sam and Blakely had hunted it a couple times, and Mike had hunted it a couple times, and we d- we hadn't seen hardly anything. Like, no one even saw a doe. And so that's when we were, like, kind of rethinking. We're like, okay, should we bounce and go somewhere else? And then that's when I I took a Saturday, and instead of going out there and hunting, which I, I, and I wanted to go get in a tree, but I'm like, I'm just going to walk this area out. I don't care if I bump the deer out. I don't care if I bump the buck, because I don't think he's going to leave if I do bump him. Uh and I just, I walked all the way through there. I put in several miles and walked through the area and, it, and the sign told me, I'm like, okay, they're here. We're just missing them somehow. And so we made some adjustments, literally moving the stand 40 yards and bam, he killed a buck. Yep. So anyways, all right. Third question, uh, Chad Robinson, again from Alabama. Uh, I just found a cluster of rubs in one specific spots, such as a 20 yard area uh, where the rubs are going in both directions. 
The rut is just starting at where we normally have a peak rut of January 10th. So about right now is their peak rut. Uh, what does this actually mean? Is this a spot I should be hunting immediately, or is this something that I would be wasting time on? Uh, I found a few these days. Uh, I, I found these a few days ago, and they were fresh. I had a cell camera on this spot with no picks so far. It's all thick 10 to 15-year-old pine stem with lots of undergrowth. Uh, the cluster of rubs is in a small swampy area with a creek passing through it on the edge of a pine stand between the pine stand and a dirt road. So that's a that's a little bit of a doozy, uh, in my opinion. Um, what, what do you think, Jacob? Me? I mean, I haven't had a lot of success hunting anywhere around rubs, to be 100% honest, just because, like, it seems— Not this time of year. Early season, maybe. Or, yeah, early season. Oh, yeah, I'm talking, like, more towards the rut. It's, like, it's cool to see them, but it's, like, it also doesn't necessarily indicate that you're going to catch a buck coming through there a whole bunch. Now, if you have a cluster of rubs where bucks are spending a ton of time, going back to this Monday's this past Monday's episode um, where we did a roundtable at our hunting, the, this hunt we did, yep. uh, Greg found a spot like this in thick cover where it wasn't just a cluster of rubs. It was a huge area, like a 150-yard area of just gigantic rubs, like super fresh all in one spot with scrapes close to it. And he's like, man, it's, it's the rut. There's probably a hot doe in this general area. And there's a couple of mature bucks just laying down the ton of sign. And he sat that spot for, I think three or four days and saw, saw three shooters there. Yeah. Couldn't get any of them shot. Had a couple, had one of them in bow range. The other one was close to being in bow range. And the other one was just completely out of range, but the bucks were using it. So if you found something like that, where it wasn't just a cluster rubs, but it's like a larger area of buck sign, maybe put some time into it. But if it's just like a small area with a bunch of clusters, he said it's in some thick cover. I think it may be worth a sit, but also I would continue to kind of scout around there because again, if you have a camera there and you're not picking up anything, that doesn't mean there's not bucks coming through there because they could be coming from behind their camera oh, on yeah. a trail you don't even notice is there. Especially in the thick stuff like that. Yeah, so I mean, I think it'd be worth throwing a sit at in that area, but it's like also fine tuning, especially if you're bow hunting, like where is going to be the most habitat edges coming together in that spot that like, it sounds like there's thick cover there. There's going to be doughies bedded in bucks are going to cruise the edge of that thick cover close to that swamp and that Creek and everything, which sounds awesome. Yeah. But it's like, you know, you, you really need to try to fine tune, like out of all that you found, excluding the buck sign, what had the best edges and travel corridor that would make the most sense for you to set up on and mm -hmm. then, you know, put a sit at. And again, in that situation, I, it screens morning spot. Like, yeah. I'm like, give me a morning hunt in a spot like that. Thick swamp edge next to some thick pines. Oh, my gosh, dude. That gets me excited. Greg, that's like deep south hunting right there. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, Greg, I mean, what's, what's your take on that? Just in, like maybe in your standpoint, like getting around the, the rut, pre-rut, late pre-rut, finding a big cluster of rubs in an area. I mean, does that tell you anything? And, like, what's your thought on that? Yeah, I mean, my experience is very similar to yours. Like, I haven't killed deer based off of, like, rubs. I don't think maybe more than once or twice, you know, to me, it's like, if I see a bunch of rubs, like a rub line, it's like, okay, I know that there's bucks in this area laying down sign, which is a great thing. But all that tells me, or, you know, what I've had more success doing is like, okay, I've learned something now I need to expand on that. Right. So it's like, I'm going to use that as my, my kind of my jump off point and widen my circle. It's like, okay, can I actually find scrapes in this area too? Right. Like, is there an area where this rub line or this cluster of rubs intersects um, hot scrapes. Right. And that's going to tell me more, um, where I want to be. Like I've had a lot more success hunting over scrapes than I have actually over rubs. So it's great to know, right. Because it tells you that there are bucks in this area. They are laying down sign. Um, it's a good starting point, but I'm not going to put all eggs in that basket just because I found, you know, a bunch of rubs in one small area. It's like, what's the next piece that's really going to inform 
you know, where I sit in that general area. That's kind of what I'm going to do in that situation. Yeah. I, I fall under the, I fall under that too. I've actually gotten burned a couple times in spots like this where I found a big cluster of rubs. And I think what it ended up being is uh, like a buck might be locked down with a doe in a certain area. Cause I don't know, I don't know exactly how, yeah, such as a 20 yard area. This is exactly what I've run into before. So he's saying a, a cluster of rubs in like a 20 yard area. And man, we've had a place like that, like around here that we've hunted where there's these trees in the bottoms they really like to rub and they just turn orange when they rub them. And you'll go down in a bottom and they'll, like every one of them will be rubbed. There'll be like 20 rubs all in a little spot. And when you see that, you're like, oh my gosh, you know, and you want to get up in a tree and hunt it. And I've hunted stuff like that and just seen literally nothing. And I think it's because, like, either, that, like you said, there was a hot doe in there, maybe a buck was locked down with her and he just had time to work on all those trees, or or maybe there was a hot doe in the area and those bucks were coming through there and they were just each hitting a couple trees. Like, whatever the case was, I've never had a lot of luck with that this time of year because it can be so random. But I like to see it, you know. Um, it's like a piece of the puzzle, I guess. You know, it tells me that, okay, there's, there's definitely a lot of bucks working in this area. So uh, then, kind of like you said, Greg, I, I want to go look for that next puzzle piece. And for me, that's usually a big old giant scrape. That's what I'm looking for most of the time. Uh, so anyways, all right, well, that's, that's three questions, man. That's, uh, that's all we got today. Uh, don't have a new review to read, so everyone go leave us a new review so we can read a new one on the next podcast. But uh, uh, Greg, where can people follow along with you on social media? Man, I, I stay pretty quiet on social media. Um, I am I have my own account, um, just Greg Farrell on Instagram. Um, but we put a ton of content out uh, through First Light via our Instagram page, YouTube, even on the website. Um, you know, there's really good kind of cool information on a lot of like the product pages and the pattern pages and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, you can definitely find me. Um, otherwise, tune into anything First Light, and if it's related to Whitetail. Um, whether you, I guess you like it or not, you might stumble upon my face there too. Yeah, I hear that. Yeah, you uh, you go to the First Light YouTube page and you can actually find a, a hunt that we did in Georgia on the YouTube First Light page. Yeah, so. on the and I shot a buck on it. Yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah, and also I'll just say this, guys, be very excited for 2024. <laughs> that's all i can say yeah. greg, greg can't say anything but be very excited for 2024 guys yeah. um no greg we greatly really appreciate you coming on the podcast man it's been fun i think there's a lot of really good tidbits and information early on um even with some you know not count not excluding the q a's the q a's were good but like some of your thought process on um you know insulation and managing moisture i think that'll open up a lot of people's minds and man, next yeah. time they go out in the woods they won't freeze to death because they wore too much gear on the walk-in yeah and it's pretty timely because it looks like we're about to get a freaking arctic blast down here later this month so you know this is the time of year where it actually gets cold down here and we start dealing with some cold temperatures you know our november and december are pretty mild but usually january we start getting down in the 20s at night which for us is incredibly cold so anyways here we are yeah talk to me when you well, we could... sleep in it for five nights in a row and it's 25 <laughs> degrees well. we could do a whole podcast on uh just layering and systems right so maybe that's the next one <laughs> yeah yeah we, we we need some uh questions guys if you get some uh questions for greg and maybe we do oh, a, yeah, a, a reboot episode uh write those in especially maybe about layering or any other like technical apparel questions and we can do a big q a with greg himself and put him on the hot seat and yeah. see how he performs my <laughs> <laughs> uh not a lot of people know this but my background so i went to school for biology and chemistry um before i got into this line of work so I love to nerd out on the technical side of fabrics and insulations and systems, and uh, I could spend all day talking about that stuff. I love it. 
Awesome. Nice. Perfect. Well, guys, listen, we appreciate y'all watching this podcast on YouTube. Appreciate y'all listening to this podcast on all the major listening platforms. And uh, just appreciate y'all's support, again, buying all the apparel and everything else we got coming on. Uh, Also, heads up, we've got our second annual Hunters Meetup coming up, guys, in February 24th at Weaver Meets Processing up in Hartsville, Alabama. Don't miss it. It's our second annual live event. It's been great. I think we're going to incorporate a little bit more seminars this time, some live podcasts, the whole nine yards. It's going to be a really good time. And, um, yeah, dude, it's going to be... Yeah, big buck exciting. contest. Big buck contest and everything else. Maybe Andrew will kill one and put in the big buck contest. I'm still working on I'm mine. I got fully planning. I got one it. I got one tag left, so we'll, we'll figure out how that plays out. But uh Greg, just greatly appreciate you coming on the podcast. Listeners, thank y'all for joining us. And remember everybody, y'all stay southern. Y'all go ahead and write down the dates, June 28th through June the 30th. Go ahead and just mark those off your calendar so you can be at the Dalton Convention Center in Dalton, Georgia for the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard a a ton of content from that expo last year that we posted. Uh, We talked about it a ton. Look, if you're the kind of person that listens to this podcast, this show was literally made for you. It was literally designed for you, which means you're going to love it. You know, all the best companies in mobile hunting are going to be there. A lot of the best deer killers in the Southeast are going to be there. A lot of our past podcast guests are going to be there. It's just, it's going to be an incredible event. And hey, if you've been looking to either get into a saddle or maybe a mobile lock-on setup or just a different kind of tree stand setup, I'm telling you, it's worth the investment to go to this show because they're all going to be there and you, you will get to try all of them in person before you buy it. So you don't have to order something online and then wait for it and then try it when it comes in to see if you really like it. You're going to get to go put your hands on everything all in one day, test it all out and figure out exactly what works best for you and have it taken care of before deer season starts. So like I said, go ahead and put it on your calendar, guys. It's a no brainer. You got to be at the show. Again, it's Friday, June 28th through Sunday, June 30th in Dalton, Georgia. We absolutely cannot wait to meet you guys there and talk hunting. So we'll see you at the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo in Dalton, Georgia.